Uh, Easter is not just a one-and-done kind of thing. We live in the resurrection of Christ, um, and He is resurrecting us. And so, um, He is risen. He is risen indeed is not just a one-day kind of thing. And so we, we celebrate that even today. Um, let me ask this. Are you the type of person that automatically buys into the hype of something? Or are you kind of a, like, I've got to see it or experience it to believe it? Like, I'm, I'm a skeptic, all right? Like, when someone hypes something up, like, I've got to find out for myself. Especially restaurants, because I love food, and I kind of am a self-proclaimed foodie. And so when someone hypes up a restaurant, I'm like, ah, oh, man, I, like, it's like you're, you're hyping up Bob Evans. Come on, it's not that good. <laughs> sorry, if, sorry. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I think I just offended a bunch. <laughs> Seriously, guys, Bob Evans, you can do a lot better now. Right. <laughs> um, I'm kind of a skeptic when it comes to building hype. Uh, especially, all right, so here's the deal. Uh, movies. I don't go to movies very often. Um, but if someone hypes up a movie, I kind of find myself, I've got, to, I've got to go check it out, see if I really buy into this hype. So recently, a, a movie came out called The Greatest Showman. How many of you have seen The Greatest Showman? All right, so Greatest Showman, uh, it's a musical about P.T. Barnum and about how he kind of started his, his shows and his circus and, uh, and things like that. So uh, I was having conversations with, with a few different people, and they're like, we went and saw that new Greatest Showman movie, and it was awesome. Like, it was, it was one of the greatest movies I've seen. And I'm like, all right, it's a musical First of all, like, I'm not big on musicals. I, I do have a man card that I have to hold closely to my, you know what I mean? Like, so I'm, I'm not real big, although I I'll tell you, uh, Les Mis, all right, I'm, a, I'm a Les Mis fan, okay? Uh, we, we went to see that in the movie theater, and like 45 minutes into the movie, I had to lean over to Chelsea and say, what is going on? Like, I have no idea what's happening. And so we had this side conversation. She was explaining it to me, and so I understood, and I was like, Wow, this is a really good movie. So um, anyway, I'm not huge on musicals, but, but uh, the hype for The Greatest Showman was there and everybody was talking about it. So I'm like, all right, let's go see The Greatest Showman. And so uh, over Christmas break, actually, I took the college students. We went to see The Greatest Showman. And let me tell you what, it was an awesome movie. Like if you haven't seen it, the hype is real and it's coming out on DVD uh, this week actually. So like happy late Easter present for you. Uh, Chelsea and I actually watched it again on Friday and I may or may not have the soundtrack on my Spotify playlist. I'm just saying, all right? Don't take my man card, all right? It's okay. <laughs> the hype of The Greatest Showman was real, but I had to experience it. I had to see it to believe it myself. In the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel, John writes several stories where there's people who kind of have this, I have to see it, I have to experience it before I'm going to believe it. I'm getting a lot of feedback here, Sam. Do you? There we go. Oh, now you can't even hear me. That's cool. I'll just yell. Um, in, the, in the Gospel of John, he writes these stories about people who need to see in order to believe what is happening. 
Uh, it starts off with Jesus when he's first calling his disciples. Uh, we see in John chapter 1 that first Jesus has called Philip, and Philip has bought into this, and Philip has uh, decided to follow Jesus, and then he goes and tells Nathaniel, he says, hey guys, he says, Nathaniel, I think that we've found the Messiah. Like this guy is the real deal. He's kind of hyping Jesus and saying, this guy's the real deal. Nathaniel, come on and follow me. And Nathaniel is saying, who is this guy? Where's this guy from? And he finds out that he's from Nazareth. And what does Nathaniel say? He said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Like he's not buying into this hype. He's not buying into what Philip is trying to sell him. And so uh, then we see that Nathaniel has his own encounter with Jesus. And through this conversation, through this conversation, Nathaniel essentially says, surely you are the son of God. And he leaves everything behind and he follows him. He needed this see it to believe it experience. We good? Should I switch to a handheld, Sam? Or is that is that good there? Okay, good deal. Are you guys hearing it, or is it just me? Okay, all right, good deal. I was nervous. It was just me. I'm like, oh gosh, something's going on in my ears. Um, Nathaniel needed this, uh, needed to see it in order to believe it. And then, if we fast forward in the book of John, uh, we we see the story of this woman at the well. Jesus encounters this woman at the well, and it's this crazy conversation that they have. But uh, but essentially, she walks away from this conversation believing in Jesus, and she goes back to her people to her neighborhood, to her town, and she starts telling them about this Jesus guy. Now, Scripture says that some of the people believed based on what she said. But then it goes on to say that a whole lot of other people went to experience Jesus for themselves. And when they had that encounter with Jesus, they began to follow and believe. They needed that see it to believe it experience. Even Mary at the tomb, we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus last week. Even Mary at the tomb, she kind of goes and she sees the empty tomb and she's distraught over her Lord and Savior not being there. And she says, what happened to him? If somebody took him, just take me to the body. And then this guy comes up behind her and talks to her and she thinks it's the gardener. And then she turns around to see that it is Jesus. She saw him and she believed it. John has these stories of these, I've got to see it to believe it moments. And this is where I want to pick up our story today. Uh, the story is, the storyline is as follows. These men decided that they would leave everything that they had and that they had worked for behind them. They would leave their entire lives behind them to follow this man, Jesus, as they thought that he was the Messiah. He was the one that they had been waiting for. And so they left everything behind and they followed him and they, they drank with him and ate with him and, and lived with him and listened to him teach and watched him perform miracles and they followed him. And then all of a sudden, Jesus starts talking a little bit crazy. He starts talking about a time when he would no longer be with them. And he starts talking about how his life would be taken. And then all of a sudden, this starts to play out in front of their very eyes. 
Jesus is arrested. And then Jesus is mocked and put on trial. And then Jesus is crucified. And and then he's buried into a tomb. And then they go to the tomb and he's not there. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. This is what they have gone through in the past three years. This is what has transpired in their lives. The very man that they gave up their entire lives to follow was now dead and gone, and they couldn't even find his body. Somebody must have taken it. This is where we find ourselves as we pick up in Scripture in John chapter 20. Uh, If you want to follow along, John chapter 20, we'll start in verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, being Resurrection Sunday. So this is the evening of the resurrection. When the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Imagine that scenario. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. I want to pause right there because that's a very interesting uh, verse in Scripture, and I don't have time to kind of uh, go into that because I want to focus on what comes next. Um, but it's a it's a confusing one that I honestly need to do even more research on. Uh, but but it, it, it he's talking about you've received the Holy Spirit, and and if you forgive people, then they'll be forgiven. But if you don't forgive people, then they won't be forgiven. And in my mind, I think, man, do we have the power to forgive, or is that God's alone? And so I think maybe. Um, Maybe this idea of if we as the church aren't proclaiming that people can have forgiveness, then how can they be forgiven? Just a little nugget to hold on to. Again, that's all I'm going to say on that because there's more I want to to unpack. So it goes on to say, Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Put yourself in these disciples' shoes for just a minute. 
They are huddled together in this room with doors locked. And you may think, why were they, why were they there? Why were they huddled? Why did they lock the doors? Why did it seem as though they were afraid? Because they were afraid. Like the guy that they had devoted their entire lives to for the past three years was murdered on a cross. And then all of a sudden his body disappeared and they were huddled in fear of the same fate. Like if this is the guy that we're following and this is what we've devoted our lives to, then surely the same fate will be upon us. And so we find them huddled together in this room, wondering what in the world had just happened. This guy that I've devoted everything to is gone. What happened and where does this leave us now? And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes in for the big reveal. And he does it in Jesus fashion, right? Like he just shows up. We don't know how he just shows up. But in this gathering, someone is noticeably missing. Someone is noticeably missing. The disciples had all gathered together, but Thomas wasn't there. Thomas had decided to stay away. For whatever reason, Scripture doesn't really explain why he wasn't there, but Thomas wasn't there. The rest of the disciples, they had experienced the resurrected Christ himself in their midst. And so they have this, this big hype story that they are ready to tell. Like Jesus, who you saw crucified on the cross, is walking amongst us. Like he showed up in the room with us and talked to us. And we saw his hands and his, his side and, and it was Jesus. And so they have this hype story and they go out. And who does scripture say they find to tell? Thomas. They tell Thomas, Thomas, I don't know why, where you were or why you weren't here today, but guess who we just saw? And they tell him that we saw the risen Jesus, and Thomas is having nothing to do with it. Thomas says, I'm not, no, no. You guys are crazy. You're just, you're just messing with me. You're messing with my mind here. That's not real. He says, unless I touch his wounds in his hand, unless I put my hand into his side where they speared him, I'm not going to believe it. But can you blame him? Can you really blame Thomas? Hey, Brandon, can you reach behind you and grab my water there? Sorry. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Can you really blame Thomas for needing more proof? Sometimes Thomas, I think, gets a bad rap. But if we are in his shoes, can you really blame him? This morning, what I want to do is think through this particular story from kind of three different angles or three different perspectives. First, I want to look at this from the angle of Thomas. Again, I said that I think that sometimes Thomas gets a bad rap. In fact, we label him as what? Doubting Thomas. Like, how would you like that for a nickname? Like, hey, it's Doubting Bob. Like, this is Doubting Thomas. He gets a bad rap. We read through him in Scripture. We read him in Scripture and we're like, this is Doubting Thomas. Man, he really should have believed. Like, he gets this bad rap. But can I be honest with you? I identify with Thomas. 
Like if I were to put myself in someone's shoes in that story, if I were to pick someone where I think I would be right there alongside him, I think as a pastor, I would still be with Thomas. Because I identify with Thomas. In fact, I'm glad that we don't label doubters as such today. Because how would you like your youth pastor to be called Pastor Doubting Josh? Doesn't have a very good ring to it, does it? But I identify with Thomas. I know what it's like to be a little bit skeptical. Now, I don't think that, I don't think that Thomas lacked a passion or a love for Jesus. In fact, if we reverse in the scriptures to, uh, to chapter 11, we see uh, this encounter happen. And we see that Thomas is the one, when talking about Jesus, he says, let us go and die with him. That doesn't sound like someone who lacks the passion and the love for the man that he's been following. He doesn't seem to be lacking that love and passion. He's just in this moment experiencing some doubt that I probably would have as well. He experienced a doubt that I think, if we're honest, we have likely experienced as well. Sometimes, though, I think that we can be afraid to doubt. That we're afraid to doubt. That we're afraid to ask the hard questions. That we're afraid that if I ask that, or if I think that, or if I feel that, or if I wonder about that, like that's going to make me somehow less. Or somehow a bad Christian. Man, I can't, I can't feel that way. I'm just going to push, push that doubt out of my mind. Yep, yep, I'm, I believe everything is good. Sometimes I think we're afraid to doubt. What I find in Thomas is so refreshing to me. Because even as a pastor, in a moment of honesty and vulnerability, when I sometimes hear the stories of the Bible, like a guy living inside of a giant fish for three days, and people just marching around a, a wall and then it collapses. Like I have moments where I think, man, is that real? Like, that's crazy. So when I read about Thomas, I find his doubt to be refreshing to me. What I find is Thomas, who wasn't willing to just simply buy into something because other people were hyping it. I find this brutal honesty of a man who's so distraught by grief and doubt and wondering what happens that he's even willing to vocalize it. To say, man, this is what I need. This is where I'm at right now and this is what I'm going to need if I'm going to keep going. If I'm going to believe it. He has this brutal honesty about his faith and his doubts. As I was kind of researching through this uh, I found this, this quote that I found to be extremely helpful. There is more faith in honest doubt than in blindly repeating what we have been fed. Hmm. 
more faith in honest doubt than in blindly repeating what we have been fed. I don't know about you, but I find that to be refreshing. I find comfort in that. That in my honest, my times of honest doubt, that's where Jesus meets me. Those times of honest questioning, rather than just blindly repeating what we've been fed. Like the others that John had written about in his gospel, Thomas needed a real encounter with Jesus. Here's the cool thing. Jesus gave him exactly what he needed. He specifically asked that I need to see his hands. I need to put my fingers in the hole of his hand. I need to put my hand in his side. And when Jesus shows up to Thomas, that's exactly what Jesus offered to him. Jesus gave Thomas exactly what he needed in his moment of doubt. And here's the, here's the cool thing about Thomas. Once he had it, once he had exactly what he needed, he was all in. All in. He only needed what, what he needed to overcome his doubt. And once he had it, he was all in. Scripture doesn't really, um, doesn't really paint this picture of what Thomas did after this. All we simply see is that once he had put his hand in his side, he just said, simply said, my Lord and my God. He had exactly what he needed to make that confession, my Lord and my God. Beyond that, Scripture doesn't really uh, say what, what transpired in, in Thomas's life, um, but there's, a, there's another story um, in, in the, the book of the Acts of Thomas. Now, that's not a canonized book of the Scripture. It's not in our, in our Bible, um, but there's a story in, in that that, um, that I think reflects the pattern of Thomas and just kind of uh, helps me think about maybe what Thomas did after this. Um, and essentially in this story, uh, Thomas was there and Jesus had appeared again to Thomas and, and said, Thomas, I want you to go and preach in India. And Thomas basically says like, wherever you go, Jesus, I'm going to go there, but I ain't preaching in India. Like I'm, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm, I don't want to go preach in India. And so he had this moment of hesitation and this kind of moment again of doubt and he needed something more. And so the story goes that Jesus essentially sold Thomas as a slave to the country of India. And so Thomas finds himself in India. And so then he's like, oh, I'm in India. I guess I should preach in India. Like, uh, this is my sign that I got to preach in India. And so then like in this story, Thomas is essentially credited with spreading Christianity to India. Now, again, that's not a canonized, that's not part of our Bible, and so I'm not here to tell you that that is truth, but I'm simply here to tell you that this story kind of reflects uh, what I see in Thomas. That doubt, that hesitancy, but then when he gets what he needed, he's all in. Can I encourage you this morning? Don't be afraid of doubt. Don't be afraid of questions. Don't be afraid of wondering. Don't be afraid of the tough things of our faith. But when you get what you need, and I believe that God is faithful and will give you what you need at His time, when you get what you need, go all in. Like Thomas, go all in. Next, I want to... Uh, I want to look at this from the, uh, from the perspective of the disciples. The disciples, 
The disciples were gathered together that resurrection evening. Thomas was missing, but the disciples were there. To me, the disciples seemed to respond to Thomas with love and inclusion. Thomas wasn't with them the first day when they had encountered Jesus. Even though Thomas failed to show up for whatever reason, Thomas failed to show up. Even though he failed to show up, the disciples, what did they do? They went to find him. They sought him out. They found him. And they told him the story of what they encountered. You see, I see in that the disciples who weren't willing to just let Thomas go off the deep end because he was experiencing some sort of doubt and confusion and questioning. That they weren't willing to just let him go for whatever reason. Thomas needed a a week off from church and he didn't show up. And the, the disciples weren't willing to just cast him off and say, forget about him. He's walked away. They had this attitude of love and inclusion and they left their encounter with Christ to go find Thomas and to tell him what they had experienced. Now the story goes on to say that it was a week later when they were gathering again in this same room in the same scenario, locked up again in fear. And who was there this time? Thomas was back with them. See, I don't, think there's, I don't think it's just a minor detail of the story that the disciples, dare I say the church, went to look for the one who doubted and questioned and needed something more. And then the very next week when they gathered, he was there. I'm not sure why Thomas wasn't there the first time. Perhaps Thomas's doubt and his grief and his pain and his questioning and his wondering was just too great that he needed to separate himself. Scripture's not clear on why he's not there, but maybe it was just too much for him. I think maybe if we could point out one mistake that Thomas made in all of this, It was attempting to face all of that, the grief, the questioning, the doubt, alone. That he tried to overcome that on his own. But it was the disciples, again, dare I say it was the church, that goes out of their way to find doubting Thomas. Can the church... Can our church be a place where grief and doubt and questions are embraced? And even a place where those things are processed in community? Where they are given this opportunity to be talked about? There's a a trend in youth ministry. Essentially... Um, that a significant number of our teens as they graduate from, uh, from high school and youth group, they also graduate from their faith. They walk away from their faith. Staggering numbers. And it's not our church. It's youth ministry um, across the country. That many are walking away from their faith. There's an organization that has done significant research in this, and they've tried to identify what factors contribute to this scary number. One of the leading factors in this was unexpressed doubt. 
to say that our teenagers had these questions about things that we were talking about and things that we were making claim of and stories that we were telling. And they had these questions, but they didn't feel like they had an opportunity to express those doubts. They didn't have a place where they could, uh, in a healthy way, unpack and, un- and, and discover those questions and think through those doubts. And so they graduated from high school and they found themselves in college with these unexpressed doubts that were festering in their minds And eventually it was too much to say, man, I can't even believe any of that. So they walked away. Can we be a church that embraces those questions? What better place for someone to process doubt than with a community of believers? See, I believe that God's grace can sustain us doubters through times of doubt. Can I suggest to you this morning that it's the church's job to be the means of that sustaining grace? Finally, I want to look at this from the angle of Jesus. Now, I'm certain on that first day, the evening of his resurrection, when Jesus somehow entered into the the room that the disciples were in, I'm certain that when Thomas did a quick scan of the room, he noticed right away that Thomas wasn't there. And I'm sure that he also knew why Thomas was absent. And even though Jesus wasn't there when Thomas vocalized his doubt and and spelled out exactly what he needed to believe, I believe that Jesus knew what Thomas needed. There's a minor detail in this story that comforts me regarding Jesus' response and attitude toward Thomas. Notice this. It was a whole week later that Jesus showed up again. It was a week after the resurrection evening that Jesus showed up again. This time when he showed up, who was there? Thomas was there, again, probably because the disciples went out to find him. Thomas was there. It was a whole week before he showed up again. And in this moment, Jesus gave him exactly what he needed. He let him touch his hands. He let him put his hands in his, uh, in his pierced side. He gave him exactly what he needed to believe, which isn't that just like Jesus <laughs> to give us exactly what we need. Now, I'd like to say that it's just like Jesus to give us exactly what we need when we think we need it. But we know that that's not the case, right? He gives it to us exactly when he knows that we need it. But it was a week later. That week tells me a couple things. And maybe I'm reading into it too much, but, but this week that passes in between tells me a couple of things. First, Jesus wasn't worried about Thomas's doubt. He wasn't in a hurry to fix Thomas's problems of doubt. He wasn't in a hurry to answer those questions almost seemed to be okay with it. He didn't, he wasn't in panic mode, like Thomas is doubting, like we got to fix this really, really quick. Like he waited a week to do what he needed to do. The other thing is 
Jesus sustained Thomas in his time of doubt. He sustained him, meaning that he held them close enough, he held him close enough that he didn't completely go off the deep end in that time of doubt and in that time of questioning. Jesus sustained him. And that happened through the disciples. We as the church get to sustain doubters. <laughs> That's pretty cool. That's a pretty big task. That we as the church get to sustain doubters. And then finally, Jesus gives him exactly what he needs. He didn't rush into this, rush, rush in to prove what he needed to prove. He let a week go by. And to me, that says that to me that Jesus was okay with that doubt. That Jesus was okay that Thomas needed something else. Now, the, the final words of this interaction uh, has Jesus telling, uh, telling Thomas, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And I think sometimes we take this as, a, um, as an opportunity to see that Jesus is condemning Thomas. To say, like, you, just, you should have just believed me without seeing, which is interesting to note that all of the other disciples, <laughs> they were doubting as well. <laughs> they, needed, they just happened to be there when Jesus showed up, right? So Thomas gets pointed out. So we, we sometimes take this, this scripture, or this particular verse to say, like, Jesus was condemning him. Like, you should have just believed me without even seeing and he says, blessed are the people who will believe even without seeing. I don't think that's what Jesus was doing here. I think Jesus was kind of giving this prophetic blessing of the future generations of people, i.e. you and I, who will one day have to believe Jesus without ever seeing him. This wasn't a condemnation of Thomas's questions and doubts. This was simply Jesus saying, man, you've seen and you believed and that's cool. Someday people are going to have to believe me without ever seeing me. May they be blessed because it's not going to be easy. So I wonder where you find yourself this morning. Are you like me? And there are times when you have these questions and these doubts. Maybe this morning would be a great time to express those doubts to the one who brings about those doubts. <laughs> to God himself. To express those doubts to him. Can I tell you, he's not afraid of them. <laughs> he's not afraid of the questions you may have. Maybe this morning would be an opportunity for you to express those. Maybe this morning would be an opportunity to commit to being the type of church or the type of follower of Christ that sustains those who are doubting. If that's a conversation over coffee with someone and you are, um, you are vulnerable enough to, to admit that you've had questions as well. Where are you this morning? We're going to spend just a couple of minutes um, in silent reflection. Maybe you take this time as a, as a time to express that doubt to God. Maybe it's to ask him how we can better be the church that sustains the doubters. And then in just a couple of minutes, Pastor Bob's going to come and close us in prayer.